0: Thanks for pressing play. Many of us would like to be more creative, and some of us would like to make our living with our creativity. But without legendary role models who are willing to get real and go deep about their experience making it happen, it's hard to learn what it really takes. In today's dialogue, you're going to find out, and a lot more. You see, our guest is New York Times best selling fiction author of monster hits like Wife 22, The Slippery Year, The Valley of the Moon, Melanie Gideon, and her new book is one of the most anticipated fiction books of 2021. It's called Did I Say You Could Go? In our discussion, we dig into what it really takes to be a professional fiction writer, how Melanie works on her craft like a real job. (laughs) I think a lot of people think that, you know, writers maybe just sit around and wait for inspiration to hit or something. We also dig into why and how Melanie has been able to successfully shift genres and for the most part, take her fans with her and how that has meant that she's taken a lot of risk with her writing because she's willing to go into new places. Also pay attention to why Melanie thinks it's okay to have the goal of entertaining people with writing. Now in this dialogue, you will also hear my genuine affection for Melanie. You see, we've been friends for years, and I'm deeply honored that she is launching Did I Say You Could Go here on this podcast. And uh, if you care about creativity, I think you're going to fall in love with Melanie, too, the way I have. Now, if you're one of her zillions of fans, what you're about to hear is a very different window into this icon, one that I don't think you've had before. This is Christopher Lockhead. Follow your different. Podcast magazine says we're, quote, the best business podcast. And a podcast reviewer calls me, quote, an annoying host. Whatever you call us, we are exclusively for people who value real, different dialogue over overly. Edited interviews. My friends at Netsuite are the world's leader in cloud business systems. Check them out at netsuite.com/slash/different today. That's netsuite.com/slash/different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Check out splunk.com/slash/d the number two and the letter E. And why not go to Lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates. It's our newsletter, and it's kind of like a Harvard Business Review, but for pirates. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, how are you, Mel?
1: Are we on right now? We are? <laughs> Okay. I'm good, Chris. How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm very excited to see you. You too. Thank you for doing your first podcast with me.
1: Yes, this is my first.
0: And uh, what's it like to do kind of book promotion, a quote unquote book tour as an introvert?
1: Oh my gosh. Good question. Well, Chris knows me pretty well. I will say that I am an introvert. I've been at this a long time. This is my seventh book. Did I say you could go, which publishes in two weeks and it's a little bit excruciating for me, I have to say the, the publishing part of the business. I love creating, architecting the story, designing it, engineering it and writing it and editing it. So that process is at least half. You even love the editing, Mel? I do because you are, you're finding, you're streamlining the story. You are sometimes finding the story in the editing and you're just making it tighter, tighter and tighter and creating, um, you know, what you want for your reader, what I want for my reader is to create a page turner where they can't, they just have to know what happens next. No matter what genre I'm writing in, that is what I endeavor to do. So I love that. Love that process. The um, process of publicizing it a little less um, for sure. But what's interesting is that what's happening now with PR is everything is online which is a relief for me. So I'm doing readings. They're not actually called readings anymore. They're called virtual events and you don't do them alone anymore. Typically in the past, I would go to a bookstore and it would be only me up there having a conversation with myself. Doing a reading, which, you know, honestly is a little bit boring and then telling, you know, why I wrote the book, how I wrote the book, blah, blah, blah. And then questions, not just sort of a very static environment. Now, though, what you do is you are in a conversation, like we are in a conversation with another author, usually. And so the uh, the conversation is lively. You're talking about each other's work as well. It's not just so centered on yourself. And you're on Zoom, so I don't have to sit there in a bookstore. I don't have to travel anywhere. And you know, more people can show up. Um, for instance, I live here in California. My whole family's on the East Coast. They haven't been to a reading of mine in fifteen years. So now they're going to be able to show up. So now I'm excited they, about that. Now
0: they can hear you read a lot. Yes. In the promotion. Yes. For new book. Yes. And so no in-person stuff for this book.
1: Um, let's see. I'm doing podcasts. Uh, my readings are all Zoom. No, everything, everything is online. Wow. Which actually makes me quite happy.
0: Yeah. Makes me happy too. You know, as somebody who used to travel two to 400,000 miles a year for the better part of 20, 25 years. I really don't need to get on a fucking plane again. Yeah. And so like during COVID, I I did keynote speeches in Australia from right here.
1: (laughs) Oh my! So do you think you're going to keep doing that to some extent that this is the new normal?
0: Yeah. Well, I don't, my general, I just don't want to travel period. Yeah. Every once in a while, I love New York and I love Italy and maybe a surf trip with, you know, some of my surf buddies Mm -hmm. and and like that. But in general, I don't really want to go anywhere. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to give a speech outside of the Bay area in person. So I'm happy to go to Australia from here.
1: Isn't that great? Yeah. but
0: Not so much uh, in in the analog world. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yes. I think this is something that's going to continue with, with uh, book publishing and PR is that, you know, you you have, have a wider reach being able to do some of these events virtually. I don't think they'll all be virtually once we're really out of COVID and feeling really safe, but um Yeah. I think that's going to continue to some extent.
0: Yeah. I I think it's great. And I think it's great that people can tune in from anywhere in the world and they don't have to be in New York or They can be in their pajamas.
1: They can have their glass of wine. Uh, Yes. (laughs) I'm
0: a big fan of wine in pajamas.
1: Me too. Especially at readings. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And the funny thing is, you know, to be, to, to do, you know, big time media sitting here with a shirt on and then board shorts.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Right. I'm in my leggings and my sneakers and yeah.
0: Comfy Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wumpies. Now, I remember years ago, um, around when we first met, you know, me being in awe of you as this celebrated fiction writer, especially, you know, because it's one thing to write nonfiction or, you know, in my case, business books, but a fiction writer. There's a lot of people who dream of being Melanie Gideon, of being a New York Times best selling fiction writer. And I remember asking you at dinner, asking you how you did it. Do you know what you said?
1: No. What did I say? It was a long time ago.
0: Yeah. You said you just didn't stop writing.
1: Mm. Hmm. Yes. I think that is a huge part of being successful. I will say being successful. I mean at anything, but particularly at writing is that you just can't give up And for me, the urgency and my passion for storytelling uh, was there, you know, since I was eight years old, I read voraciously. I always just wanted to be in another world alongside the world I was living in. So say the Narnia books, for instance, were hugely influential in my life. And I was a weird little kid and I would walk around in the woods and hope that I would find the portal to Narnia. And as I grew older and I became more serious about writing, I realized that every book that I wrote, I was creating a portal to another world that I got to live in for however long it took me to write the book. So that was magic. I found the secret. That was, you know, solve the mystery. So that's, that's what I do. And um, what was your question? I can circle back around to that. (laughs) Oh, I don't give up. Yes. Um, Yeah. So that's what I've done over and over again. And, you know, being an author is not, you know, I think people look at it and sort of romanticize about it. It's not all that romantic. I have a very practical view about it, which is that it's a job. I get myself in the chair every day. And, you know, I work Monday through Friday when I'm actively working on a book and, um, I have a a word count that, I have to meet every week and a page count every month. So I know if I want an 80,000 word book, it's going to take me, you know, I have to write 5,000 words a week, you know, 1,000 a day. I I go to that granular level and that actually helps me um, stay uh, sane and uh, not have anxiety about it. So for me, it's work. It's really pleasurable work, the writing part of it. Yeah. So, uh, the not giving up is a sort of looking at it through that lens and also the passion and urgency to write. I've never lost that. You know, if I'm not storytelling in some way, um, then, uh, I'm not, you know, living my full life. Mm. I have to always have that alternate world going. It's just fun for me. Maybe also cause I'm an introvert. Hmm.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I, uh, I forget what it was, but recently I saw, um, Bruce Springsteen. He's been, seems to be doing a lot lately. And, uh, it was video. So they were showing him in his barn in New Jersey with the E street band. And he said, they, they view it as work, not in a bad way, but this is their job. They go to work and they craft songs and they rehearse songs and they get, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's interesting, uh, that creative people, in order to be successful, many of them have to view it like work. Mm -hmm.
1: You're not sitting
0: around waiting for inspiration.
1: No, I'm not. (laughs) I have to go find the inspiration, find the story. Some writers think that the story finds you and you have to wait until it materializes. Um, and, And that works for many writers. That does not work for me. I'm always actively looking for the story that will make something flutter inside me. And I know I have to follow that. It might not be the book that I write, but, um, it will probably bring me to another path and another path and eventually I'll stumble upon it.
0: Yeah. And so, um, so you have this fairly rigorous process where you're tracking yourself against word counts Mm. and chapter counts Mm -hmm. and, 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 and the like, what else do you do to find the story?
1: I read everything because I, some of my best story ideas come from, um, I read people magazine. I read vulture, New York magazine, the New Yorker. So I read highbrow and lowbrow and all of it is important and all of it matters. And all of it just comes in and slushes around and eventually something comes up from that. And also I read novels nonstop. So
0: it's interesting. I hear some writers say, Oh, I don't have time. To read, I'm too busy writing, and so how is it you have time to read when some professional writers tell me they don't?
1: It's my homework. It's my homework, and but it's not homework for me because I love it. I need that constant uh, uh, diet of other people's storytelling to you know just give me momentum, give me motivation, kind of sort of riff off that. And uh, what else? What was your question again? I have to. I need a pad and paper. <laughs> How you, you want a piece of paper? <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Okay, I can do that for you here. Um, I'll just pull out the back of my notebook for you. Yeah, I can't go anywhere without a notebook. I I love to take notes, even if I never go back and read them. Oh, really? Yeah. It, it, at least. for fuck's sakes. Oh, hold on. You know know what I'm going to do? I'm I'm just, don't do that. Okay. I'm going to give you a book. Hold on.
1: Hold on. Chris is getting me a notebook. This is very old school. I love it. He won't allow me to open my computer (laughs) so where I could type a note really quickly. Okay. So you were saying that some people find the stories and just let them come to them. And I go in search of them, what I'm reading high and low, the steady diet. I do have lot. I make lots of time to read. I have to, um, and it's Chris for the mill. Uh,
0: that's so fascinating because, like, as as a podcaster, I consume a ton of podcasts.
1: Right, same thing.
0: And as a business writer, I consume a lot of business media. Mm-hmm. However, I think it maybe is different when you're reading uh, nonfiction. I, f- I find particularly with business media, if it's just reporting, you know, is it good reporting, then great. I'm fine with it. But most business media that's not reporting, that's opinion or that's research or that's anecdote or things like that. I I find myself reading going, this is bullshit. Mm -hmm. So I I find myself getting pissed at how lousy it is a lot. Do you have that when you when you read fiction?
1: Uh, I just wanted to ask you a question. So but don't you think that's helpful in a way to see what's lousy?
0: Yeah, because I look at it and go, this has no point of view. Mm. This has no voice. There's no consistency to this. You know, one of the things that's happened in the business media world is all the Sort of tier two brands, Fortune, Forbes, Inc., Entrepreneur. Here's a great example. So we recently had the founders of Halo app on this podcast for the launch of the company. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to do any press, any media. They're very introverted. They don't want to talk to anybody. So <laughs> yeah. they did a blog post, a tweet storm, and they came here.
1: Okay. That's, That's it. it. Yeah.
0: So as a result, and they're very well-known guys in Silicon Valley, Michael Donahue and uh, Naraj Aurora. And they were two of the guys that built WhatsApp. So the media is very focused on like, what are they doing? But they refuse to talk to anybody. So here's what, this is how bad things are in the business media world. So there's a business publication called The Verge. Once Niraj and Michael say, we're not talking to anybody, The Verge, I assume, listen to the podcast and then they write an article based on the content of the podcast and they reference the podcast in it, which is fine. Yeah, it's great. Then Entrepreneur Magazine writes a story about Hallow App referencing The Verge as though The Verge talked to fucking Niraj and Michael, which they didn't. And, of course, give me no credit and the podcast no credit. Then Yahoo aggregates that. So when you get to Yahoo, if you're a consumer of this business news, you're reading a regurgitation of a podcast three times over. And they call that business media. That's how fucking bad things have gotten. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then on top of that, there's just inane stupidities like... You know, why Steve Jobs wore boxer shorts and you should too. And just like all this stupid clickbaity headlining stuff and very little. And this is, you know, we maybe we can loop back to the fiction world. Very little unique or differentiated thinking. It's just regurgitation of shit you've heard a thousand times. Yeah. And so in the fiction world, you know, you sort of say a lot of people would say, well, you know, all the stories have been written. No. Right, right. And, and yet your work is so fresh and at, on one hand sort of feels familiar, but on one hand feels unique and different. And so given all the legendary fiction writers over time, how can you write? story about a woman's life, or in this case, would would you consider, did did I say you uh, could go uh, a thriller? Is that what you'd consider it?
1: Yes, I would consider it psychological suspense slash thriller. Yeah. So psychological suspense, that genre really speaks to, I mean, maybe that started uh, and became really huge with Gillian Flynn's book, Gone Girl. So difference between psychological suspense and thriller. Thriller is really like violent. You have graphic violence. You have Tom Clancy, maybe um, Daniel Da Silva, um, international espionage, stuff like that. Psychological suspense stays much closer to home. So it's about husbands and wives. It's about friends. My, my book is about a toxic female friendship. They are also page turners. They also have twists and reversals and hopefully a kick-ass ending, um, red herrings, uh, but they're, they're usually take place in everyday life,
0: which makes them hugely relatable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this book seems like there's a term, at least I don't hear very much any, anymore that I always loved. And it was associated with Shakespeare, or No, excuse me, Shakespeare, Hitchcock, um, potboiler.
1: boiler. Oh yeah, that's an old. That's an old term. That's very interesting.
0: Would you consider? Did I say you could go a bit of a pot or no?
1: Well, pot boiler for me really is more sort of detective ah. oriented. I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, Edgar Allan Poe, I would consider sort of the the forefather of three different genres: detective novels, um, horror. And, um, and, and books written from the point, the psychology of a serial killer, basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, and haunted houses. Mm. So that trope. Right. Um, so the detective stories. So, uh, I think Arthur Conan Doyle mm-hmm. was really influenced by Poe's, uh, detective stories to oh, come up with, that. um, Sherlock Holmes, that yeah. character. Right. So the haunted house trope, which would be Poe's, um, Fall of the House of Usher. OK, so the descendants of that are um, Stephen King, for instance, The Shining, that hotel. People are trapped there. Um, that is a trope that is still used and very popular today. The locked in sort of suspense where you cannot get out and people are being killed one by one or it's haunted. And it just
0: gets the, th- the thrill goes up on every page and thus the pot potboiler analogy.
1: Right, right. And then the other one is um the psychology of a, a murderer or a serial killer, and the Telltale Heart was probably that was Poe's book that did that now there Thomas what's it, Thomas Harris he did the Hannibal Lecter series. Yes. there you go, point of view from of a serial killer, which is so gripping you can't put it down. um who else Gillian Flynn? I mentioned before also point yeah. of view of a of a killer who else oh um. Do you remember Anne Rice, the Vampire Lestat series? Oh my God. So Lestat was the most, he's a vampire and a total killer, but the most charming serial killer. And you fall in love with him. You understand him. So writing from that point of view of a psychopath or a killer is really fun.
0: There was, um, I don't know if it was a Netflix series. I watched it on Netflix uh, for a while called Lucifer.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: It was. Sort of, I saw a couple
1: of episodes of that. I think it
0: was the son of the devil is who the right. character Right. And was, he
1: comes right? down to earth and he just is tired of being up there in hell. Right. And so. And of course,
0: he hangs out in nightclubs in LA because if you were the son of the devil, right. that's right. what you would do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I once, that, that was a story idea for me once is what if um, a fallen angel came to earth and was living amongst us, hiding, living amongst us, and um, a, a mortal woman falls in love with him? And I thought it was a great idea, but it never went anywhere. Huh. But I like those supernatural, a little bit of the supernatural.
0: But you haven't done supernatural yet, have you?
1: Um, I have, I have. Um, my first three books were sort of sci-fi and fantasy for young adults. Oh,
0: see, I always forget about those because I think of you.
1: That's a whole other. Yes. That was a
0: whole other life. Whole I think, other think of you, other when Melanie. You, yes, you broke into the chick lit world, well, or the the. I don't know. What would you call your first big breakout books in terms of genre or category?
1: Right. Oh, my first breakout book is called The Slippery Year. And that was actually a memoir. And um, I had been writing this very serious, dark fantasy for, mm, I'm going to say 10 years, right? And really not getting anywhere with it. I'm being very jealous of J.K. Rowling Mm. and everybody who was having all the success. I think I just (laughs) came a little too late to that. And then a friend asked me if I would write uh, a little essay um, for this publication called Edutopia, just about my kid, basically. So I wrote an essay about uh, dropping my kid off at camp for the first time. And this voice came out of me that was very funny. And I was shocked where, you know, I didn't know I had this voice. And it just just poured out of me. It was so easy. And it just mm. felt like it had been biding its time. And finally it had decided. There it was. There it was. In my throat, coming out of my mouth. So that's how I wrote the slippery year. I got um I that essay was no, not that essay. I wrote another essay. Oh, you'll appreciate this about my husband buying a van, like (laughs) uh, a man van, a man van. It was a man, a man van with a diesel engine that was so loud. It announced itself everywhere. It had this enormous cattle guard on the front. We live in Oakland, California. You know, what do we need with a cattle guard? But it was the love of his life and still is. Um, so I wrote about how I hated this thing and that essay was published in the Modern Love column in the New York Times. And that actually got me the book deal for The Slippery Year, which is 12 autobiographical essays, much in the same vein, funny, moving, just about regular life, life. parents, kids, marriage, friends. And so is that, uh, you know, we
0: hear this phrase through line in, in, in an author's work or an artist's work. Is that the through line in your work, the, the relatable everyday life part?
1: No, I don't think so. Uh, one of the three lines, there are probably a few. One of them is like the search for identity. Mm. Um, so I'm half Indian and half Armenian. Um, and I feel like just part of the way I'm wired. And also because of that, I've always sort of lived in the middle, um, one foot in either world or in two worlds. So a lot of my books are about characters who go back and forth and who are living in two different worlds. Um, the book, let's see, I wrote a book called Valley of the moon before. Did I say you could go? And that was a time travel book. And so this woman in the 1970s stumbles into this town in Sonoma Valley of the moon that is stuck in time in 1906. They got stuck in time right after the earthquake of 1906. And she goes back and forth between 1975 and 1906. Um, and I just love that. That is just so appealing to me, that idea. I guess it's, it relates back to the portals. Narnia. Narnia, yeah.
0: Do you know The Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe? So as a dyslexic, reading's always a challenge. But as a kid, I didn't know I was dyslexic and so I didn't understand why reading was so hard. And there was something about that book
1: mm.
0: that was just it was easier for me to read. I fell into that book mm. and I, it sort of, I couldn't get out of it even yes. though I was a little boy that struggled very much with reading. So what is it that's magical about?
1: That book honestly is a talisman. I mean that book is really magic. I think every kid who read it had that exact experience. I don't know how um, C.S. Lewis did it but I mean that wardrobe right. opening the wardrobe and walking and feeling the snow under your feet and then suddenly you're in winter I mean I mean, oh my gosh. And he, you know, I think he was maybe one of the first people to do that for kids, but it's also really revelatory for adults to that book. And, you know, I don't know. That's a touchstone for you me. You think
0: adults who ha- didn't read it as kids should read it?
1: Hmm. Boy, I don't know. You know, I haven't read it in so long. I should read it again. But it's just, it's just the idea of this going back and forth between two worlds um seeing that there's so much more out there you know the characters who go through there's four siblings not feeling it's a you know quintessential story not feeling like they belong in their world but finding their way and becoming new different brave people in this other world i mean that is a that is a trope that will never go out of style right that kind of a plot
0: will always win and so you know i hear this a lot in podcasting uh, i heard this when we started our newsletter I hear it all the time and it, really any creative genre, modern creative genre. Oh, well, you know, there's a million newsletters. There's a million business newsletters. You you shouldn't do a newsletter, right? Oh, everybody's got a podcast. You shouldn't do a podcast. Or when we did play bigger, you know, there's more business books being published today than time. And I don't understand this thinking because, and I use you as an example all the time. I say, well, my friend Melanie is a New York Times best-selling fiction writer. And what she didn't say is, well, Shakespeare and Dickinson did it all and they were legendary. And so I'm not going to write. And so what is it about this sort of human desire to tell these stories that empowers you, even when some people make what I think is an asinine argument?
1: Right, that just why even try? Basically, that's right. the argument. Every every story's been told. There is nothing new to say or to write about or to discover. Oh gosh. Well, there are a lot of tropes. There are lo- a lot of stories that are familiar. But you, you mentioned before about my books uh, having a familiar feel, but also feeling different. Yes. As a storyteller, I think that's really important. That's what I do, and. I also think that a lot of readers respond to that. I'm not totally recreating the story or doing experimental fiction, which is great too, but that's not what I'm about. I am in service to the story, to the plot. Um, I want to entertain. I would love to move people. I would love to have people... Um, like Some of the best reviews I've gotten for this novel is one reviewer called it cuckoo bananas. And I was like, Oh my God, I couldn't (laughs) add, because that's, I wanted people to have that experience of just be totally taken out of themselves. And you can do that when you're writing a thriller. You can do that when you're writing time travel. You can do that when you're writing a memoir, all of those. I mean, that is, that is one of the defining things. Can you give people an escape? Can you take them out of themselves? Can what you do slip them through a portal? Right.
0: Now, where did you grow up, Melanie? I grew up
1: in Rhode Island.
0: And so were you born in the United States?
1: Mm. Yeah. My uh, dad immigrated here from India in 19, mm, maybe 1960. Uh-huh. And my mom is uh second generation Armenian. Her, her parents, um, came here, immigrated here in, right after the genocide in, uh, 1915, the Armenian genocide and, um, My parents met at a hospital. My mother was a nurse. My father was a resident. He had come here to do his residency in pediatrics, planned to go home and, you know, be a doctor in Hyderabad. Um, But then met my mother. They fell in love. He stayed, never went back.
0: And so there's a, you have almost a a, a fascinating hybrid point of view, I think in your work of, of that is you're of this place and of this culture. And yet you're not a hundred percent of this. To your point, you're, you're a mix of two uh, ethnicities growing up in a pretty white.
1: Yeah. Up um, in a very white town. Anglo-Saxon, yes. I'm guessing, right? Everyone was Italian. Oh, Rhode Island at that point, everybody was Italian or Irish. Boston was very similar.
0: So you're an American, but you're uh, sort of an unusual, maybe a bit of an outsider. Is that how you grew up. Did you feel that way? For sure. Yes. And how does that
1: inform your writing? I think it, it has really helped me Hmm. being an outsider. You are, and everybody is an outsider in some way, right? You had dyslexia. Maybe that made you feel like an outsider. It sure did. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, everybody has that outsider experience. And I, I think it's actually really important to have because it gives you empathy and compassion, but also it makes you into an observer. So if you're an outsider and you have feet in both worlds, you are constantly observing, you know, you're using, particularly for writers, you're using all your senses. You're smelling, you're watching, you probably have a high EQ. You're reading people. You're taking notes in your head. Um, You're listening to conversations. Um, You're eavesdropping like in a a cafe or whatever. Um, And uh, so, yeah, I think being an outsider is fundamental uh, to For me, for being a writer, and I would imagine a lot of writers uh, would say the same, that that is a real, you know, source of um, inspiration. I think if you're really in the in-group, you don't have to work that hard. You don't have to observe that much. When you're an outsider, you're observing for survival. Mm. Right? Yes. Yeah.
0: This brings up another interesting thing. Uh One of my closest friends, a brother from another mother, Colin, um, he spent a lot of his adult life being a professional photographer. He's not now. But when um, iPhones and that stuff was first coming out, he was teaching me how to use them for photography. And I don't know shit about photography. And he taught me some things and I started taking a lot more fo- photographs and just it became a part of my life that I didn't have. I had no aspirations of being a photographer, but sort of like if you have a friend who is like a great guitar player and they teach you how to play a few chords and right. you know now you have this fun thing in your life that you can that you can do. Sort of like that with photography. Anyway, one of the things that Colin said to me about being a photographer is he had this point of view that re- photographers lead a richer life than your average person. Mm. Because as a photographer, you're noticing things. And he said, there are some people who take photos and there are other people who make photos. Oh, wow. So maybe you see some beautiful clouds and some people just sort of shoot the shot. And then some people say, okay, well where should I position myself? And what about this? And what about that? And one of the things Colin always likes to do is lay down on the ground. He's like, Mm. he gets on the ground and shoots from the ground Mm because things look different. Mm. You know, he has all these sort of approaches to trying to make a great photo and take a beautiful whatever, or an interesting whatever, and take it to that next level. Anyway, long story, much longer, Mel, his point of view is that photographers, professional or not, lead richer lives because even if you're not taking photos you see photos so if you're in the car and you see something beautiful you sort of snap a photo in your mind
1: and you're seeing it deeply yes. right you yes like i would think like a painter too right i i tried to uh take a i did take a watercolor class and so the first thing they taught me in this watercolor class is how to look at something and really see it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can do that with writing, but I, I can't do it visually. So you're looking at the ocean, right? And a painter will be able to see the light and how many different shades of white or yellow or pink at sunset it is. So people who aren't visual artists, they miss all that.
0: Right. And so this leads me to a question, which is, do you think as a fiction writer, who's an observer, who has felt like an outsider, particularly in your formative years, do you think you have a similar uh, sort of skill set that that Colin's talking about? Do you experience the world differently than maybe I do because I'm not a fiction writer?
1: Hmm. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. To some extent, I would say like I, I I said before that I'm always in search of the story. Yes. And, um, the story can come from anywhere, a conversation with a person, something I read, something I observe, something I see. So that is always percolating inside of me, probably like the photographer, Right. right? Just analyzing, looking, would this be a good photograph and making the mental photograph? So I think a similar process.
0: Yeah. Now, the other one in the same vein or similar vein, I remember years ago reading an interview with one of my favorite rock stars, actually the guy I think maybe has had the coolest career in rock and roll history, Dave Grohl from the Food Mm, Fighters. Of mm -hmm. course, he was the drummer in Nirvana. And he said, I'm always writing songs in my head Uh to the point where it, it can be, it can drive you nuts. And so like what I wonder about you is, you know, Do you wake up one morning and, you know, go outside and maybe it's a dewy morning and there's a particular (laughs) smell and all of a sudden in your head, you're sort of writing, you know, her, 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 as she took a step, the, the, the the crackle of the dew on the, you know, are you always writing these sorts of, as you're experiencing life, is your brain writing magical sentences (laughs) as you're observing and experiencing things, or do you just wake up and it's a dewy morning and you do whatever you do and you're
1: not. Okay, that's I can answer that in two ways. One is that when I'm in, like, when I'm in between books, and I'm I call it gestating and and (laughs) percolating. I'm gestating on an idea. I'm considering different ideas, and then I get one that's sticky, and I know I have to pursue it. It might not turn into the book, but I know I have to pursue it. And then it's like it's I'm manic. I think about it day and night. you know, the puzzle pieces come together when I'm in the shower. I I'm just on fire with it. And that can last like the last book I did that with last idea. It was a month of that, like constantly getting ideas, constantly running to the computer, writing it down, writing it down. One idea would feed into another would feed into, Oh my gosh, the plot needs to go this way. That is that, you know, that happens between books when I'm, I'm thinking about a new book and that's thrilling. But when I go outside, I'm not usually narrating. For me, it's finding the story. Okay. When I do narrate, and I didn't realize this for a long time, is when I'm actually writing the book, I'm 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 narrating it out loud as I'm writing. Uh, and I was not aware like I did that. Like you're actually speaking yes, and writing at right. the same like, time. I'm like she went to the and I had no idea that I was actually speaking because I'm so immersed in it and so in it. It's, you know, but some, something happens where it has to I have to say it verbally, then it goes to my fingers and I'm whispering it, but I didn't realize for years that that was my process. Hmm. It's kind of weird. Yeah.
0: Interesting. And you write a lot about women. Mm-hmm. A lot of your main characters yes. are female.
1: Are they all female? Yes, I think they are.
0: And so tell me about why you think, uh, you know, most of your main characters, if, if not all are, are female.
1: Well, I am one. Um, I'm endlessly interested in um in all the different ways women can be, what they do, um you know, the darker sides of their personality, which I've really explored in did I say you could go?" which was so much fun for me because I'd never really allowed me to allowed myself to explore that voice, which I think is in everybody, but particularly toxic voice with moms about judgment about Mm -hmm. other moms, about other kids, you know, it's sort of a taboo to go there. So you might be thinking that, but you would never say what you were really thinking to anybody except maybe your best friends. Yeah. So uh, with this book, I really wanted to write about toxic female friendship and sisterhood Sisterhood. Sisterhood gone wrong. Sisterhood gone very wrong. So I'm one of four sisters, I'm also a twin. And, um, you know, we were pretty savage about staking out our own territory. And once we had staked it out, no other sister, it was, could it was have girls that. gone wild. <laughs> right? Well, it was like, I was the musical one. I was the writer. My twin was the athletic one. My older sister was the smart one. And my younger sister was the popular one. Right. Uh, and so neither, uh, none of us <laughs> would dare or ever, you know, would never occur to us to step no boys. into the, no boys, all girls. And, um, you know, we were pretty savagely competitive.
0: So you weren't necessarily each other's biggest fans.
1: Oh no, we were not friends. Like my twin sister and I, we could not have the same friends <laughs> <laughs> until maybe we got into our junior year of high school. Then that loosened, but my impression now is you're close with your sister. Yes, so, yes, do I have the I, wrong impression? Yes, no, no, I am close, but you know, I'm just saying it was very, very intense growing up, especially with the three oldest. Cause we're Don and I are only 14 months apart from my older sister, Rebecca we're basically triplets, but an example of that feels. Yeah. That's how it felt. But an example of that is I remember when I was around nine, Dawn stayed home from school with a cold. And I was so, when you feel like you don't get enough attention, there aren't enough resources. You're desperate, desperate, you know, for attention basically. So Dawn was home from school with a cold. I went to school and told everybody she had fallen off a stone wall and broken her leg. And the teacher was horrified. So she stopped the class and made everybody make get well cards for Dawn. <laughs> so I come home. And you
0: home. made this up.
1: I made it up. I made it up because I wanted attention. I wanted to be the bearer of this oh, horrible, but it you know, she titillating got all the news. <laughs> right. So I, I had to give the cards to her when I got home and, you know, the cards were like, get well soon, Dawn, you know, we hope your leg doesn't hurt too much stuff like that. And my mother said, what is going on? And so I had to confess. And I think I had to go tell the class, which was the worst. But, I, you know, I just wanted to be in the spotlight for once. And I, so I think that sisterhood and that like toxic female friendship, it's all sort of the same. Mm. And so did I say you could go? I really explore that. Um, this friendship between these two moms and their two daughters. Um, and it goes very, very bad. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, I remember the first time I as a reader uh, sort of realized that women had this thing they could do right this dark side and that was Lady Macbeth Mm. you know I remember being in grade school studying Macbeth I don't know that we I don't think we read the actual play because maybe it's a little heavy the writing but we read some synopsis of it and I remember there was a this is long before any of the more modern popular movies came out, but there was a sort of a real is, I don't know how to describe it. Sort of uh, not glitzy version of Macbeth mm-hmm. a movie that had been made that the teacher took us to. And anyway, the point being lady Macbeth was the first character that I remembered, female character that I remembered that had this evil conniving, like just, you know, Sven mm-hmm. string puller. And I was like, as a, as a boy of, I don't know, 12 years old or older, like that bitch is scary. (laughs) I didn't know that. Right. And so what is it about that sort of the dark side of, um, of females that has attracted you? And, and I mean, you clearly in, 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 did I say you should go? You clearly had something to say.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that, and I'm speaking like, you know, in broad, broad strokes here, but Um, I think that men are allowed to, um, to be that way on the surface, right? You don't have to hide that dark, dark part part of you for the most part, right? Women have to sublimate that, you know, it's not civilized. We keep that, you know, to ourselves because we don't want to show anybody what the messy, you know, sort of violent uh, feelings we might have you know, incredibly competitive feelings. So I just think societally it's, you know, it's more, you can do that. I I can't do that as much. Doesn't mean I can't. Um, I also go back to Gillian Flynn's book, Gone Girl. I think that was that really was a paradigm shift as far as psychological thrillers, because her main character was a psychopath. And all, I think all of Gillian's books, she writes about women who are that, I mean, they are violent, they are dark, and she gives them voice. And since then, I'm not sure, oh, that came out in 2012, I think, because it was published at the same time as Wife 22. Since then, You know, a lot of authors who write psychological suspense are women. Very interesting. But that character, the serial killer, the psychopathic woman is everywhere now. It's Mm -hmm. everywhere. Um, I just had never written from that point of view before. And it was tremendous fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so um, there's this conniving part of it. And it's also so you're making a statement about that. But you're also, this is a very modern book. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're saying something about our society today and um, maybe elucidate on that for me.
1: Yeah. So it's psychological suspense. It's a thriller. It's fun. It's a page turner. It's, it's funny at times, um, but it deals with some very serious issues um, that mostly teens are facing today, like um, online bullying, um, sort of the corrosive effects of anonymity online when my son was in high school, there was a app called TikTok. No, not TikTok. Um, Yik, Yik Yak, <laughs> Yik Yak. And it, right. Right, TikTok, blah, blah, blah. Yik yeah. yak, right. Yik Yak. And so that was an anonymous app, which really got out of control. And so it was sort of a hyper local app. So there would be, um, a Yik Yak for a school. So everybody knew everybody and it, you know, it just was out of control. Kids were being harassed. They were being bullied. Uh, they were self-harming as a result. They were considering suicide, really, really dark things. So that is now defunct, but we still have Reddit. We still have 4chan, right? Where people are anonymous. And um, I mean, it's poisonous. It's you know poisoning our society. It's um, that anonymity. And in my book, there is an anonymous group called Mumonymous. And you have to be invited to join this app. It's hyper local. So it's just, and they have pods. So the pods are just in the school, but none of the moms know, you know, they don't know each other's identity. So, um, so they are just free to say whatever they want to say without consequences about other people's kids, about other mothers. And, um, I mean, they just let loose. They are, you know, it's incredibly dangerous.
0: And so uh, There's a fascinating thing on this kind of vector for me, which is one of the things that we've been writing a lot about in, in our newsletter, Category Pirates. I've been talking about more and more on podcasts is, is is something that I don't understand why this is not everywhere, which is if you take the two older generations that exist today, uh, the baby boomers and the Gen Xers, right. lump them together. Yeah. Uh, we call those native analogs. They grew up hmm. without the technology, right hmm. without any of the modern computer technology right. uh, It came later and if you 're a native analog, first of all you 're like every other generation that came before, right And as a result, your analog life or what you and I might call our real life, is our real life. yeah, and our digital life is an adjunct or a side card mm-hmm. What we believe is happening now, Is, and and that when you take those two groups together, you get roughly 138 million Mm. Americans. Wow. When you take Gen Z, the younger, and then the millennials, and by the way, Gen Z are starting to have kids. Really? The older ones.
1: What? I think the oldest, my son's Gen Z, but I think it's like 24 maybe are the oldest and having kids. Yeah. How how
0: old is your son? 23. Yeah. Right. So he could be having a child. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, So. So that's my point. Even that you think Gen Z, and you're like, oh, teenagers, little ones. Well, you know, they're, they're graduating college and getting real jobs. And yes. so, anyway, the big aha here is there are 140 million of them. Mm. And our assertion, Mel, is that they are the first native digitals. Yeah. And by definition, they are a new category of human being. Mm. And the big aha here is their primary experience of life is digital, yes, and their analog experience is an adjunct. To yes, them. yes. That's why when you get together at Thanksgiving, they're all on their phones because Thanksgiving is an interruption in their real life. Beautifully put. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, a lot of thinking and research went into this. It's, it sounds easy to just say, but it, this, this is sort of two years worth of thinking and uh-huh. research and, and the like. And we've you know, written a lot about it. But I think the big aha is wait a minute. This is not the normal generational, well, their music sucks and they have different language and they have different hairdos and fashion and whatever, or even different ethos for that matter. This is, no, 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 180 degree different kind of person. One group whose primary experience is an analog experience and always will be. And one group who's 180 degree different. Their primary experience is a digital one. So Mm. uh, for for you and I, if somebody criticized us online, we're not going to go kill ourselves. Right. Matter of fact, an asshole criticized me online today and I explained to him that he should go fuck himself. Mm -hmm. Right. By the way, this guy was a university professor who I, I posted something on the billionaires going to space. And he said, that's the fucking dumbest thing I've heard today. And I said to him, well, you know, as a dyslexic, I've been called dumb by teachers my whole life. And then from there I eviscerated him. Good for you. <laughs> but anyway, um, the point being, who cares? Right. I don't give a fuck. But the reason I don't give a fuck is because that's not my primary life. In this book, you're dealing with native analogs, the parents who slide deep in the digital world and sort of get lost Mm -hmm. and the kids are native digital. So I'm curious about sort of what you think about when a native analogs get lost in a dark part of the internet Mm -hmm. and what it's like being a native analog uh, raising native digital kids, which both you have done and you write about. Right. Right.
1: Okay. One thing I just wanted to say before I answer that is that, you know, when we were young, basically we had so much privacy. We never had any concerns that something that we did, something stupid shoplifting or, you know, driving while under the influence, you know, nobody would ever know about that. You made it through safely thank God. But no, you know, that would never come back to haunt you when you're looking for a job or whatever. And that's not the case for this generation at all. None of their lives are private. They've given away their privacy. You know, their, uh, their life, they were born on Instagram, literally. Right. right. And their life 24 seven is social, uh, social media. And, um, yeah. Instagram in, in particular is really bad. I think they've recently put some tools into place that lets you block certain words. If somebody's DMing you, because usually like the harassment comes to the DMS Yeah, that block, you won't even see those messages if there are certain words in that message. But, um, you know, still the bullying that has happened over Instagram is, is unbelievable. You know, I think that a statistic is 30% of kids have been bullied or harassed on Instagram. That's a lot. LGBTQ kids, even more. So that's kids bullying kids. The other new thing Mm -hmm. is parents bullying kids or harassing kids so that their kids can get ahead. So a recent headline was about this cheerleading mom. I don't know if you've heard about this. I haven't. Okay. So she created deep fake videos of so her her daughter was a cheerleader right she created deep fake videos of her daughter's cheerleading rivals that showed them um nude um drinking doing drugs so they would get kicked off the team i mean what the heck i mean that is crazy
0: that's where we are
1: that is where we are
0: because the digital is becoming the more the primary life experience
1: and you know just People are just so much meaner when they have anonymity. In the
0: old days that she might've started a rumor about that.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: And hope the game of telephone Mm -hmm. wouldn't make that go. But Mm -hmm. today you do that digitally because it's more efficient and effective.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. But she got caught. Um, So like, so your other questions were, were what happens when a native analog is raising a, a, a native digital?
0: Right. Well, and you have to deal with all these issues.
1: Yes, right. Well, I speak from my own experience with my son. Um but it's different because I don't have a daughter and I think the world is way more cruel for girls uh bullying online than it is for guys. Mm. I think that's true for the most part. So, um I have to say I am not all that sophisticated on social media and all of that. And <laughs> I actually don't like being on it a lot. I, you know, I really value my privacy. I'm really interested You have
0: one of the lowest given how popular you are. You have one of the lowest profiles I think I've ever seen. I I never
1: post, which is terrible. My publisher will hate me for saying that, but I just, I just never post. I just, you know, feel like my life is my life. I want to live it. I don't want to post it online and then be waiting the agony of waiting to see who liked it. I just refuse to, you know, get on that train. Because once you're on it, I think that's it. You can't get off. The dopamine hit is a real thing for people. That's my guess. So I rarely post. I'm not on Instagram, which I think I need to be because I'm doing an Instagram interview. So I don't even know what it's really called. Instagram live. Right. Right.
0: So you probably have to have an Instagram handle.
1: Right. I probably have to have an account. You know, I didn't have a teenage daughter. There are two teenage daughters in this book. Did I say you could go? And I had to do a lot of research because I didn't. I had no idea what it was like to be a teen girl, you know, a digital native, uh, you know, young teenage girl. So I, I spoke to girls who were 14 and 15 and, you know, they told me this is what they do and blah, blah, blah. But I really had to do that research because I had no idea.
0: So in spite of the fact that you were a 13, 14 year old girl once, yes, the fact that you had a native analog experience meant that you had to go do research on what it means to be a 13, 14 year old girl I in did. this new world. And
1: with all the DMs, there's a lot of DMs in this book on Instagram. There's a lot of texting. I I actually had to have my son like look over the texts and to make sure they didn't sound like a you know 50 year old woman, you know, writing texts. You know, they had to sound like they, these are really teenage girls. So I had help with that. He did that, <laughs> and then another um uh, another young woman helped me with that too. So I passed their test. So that was good. And then, you know, as far as being a teenage girl even though I don't have one, I could totally tap into what it was like to be 14 and 15 and trying to be popular and maybe having issues with weight or, um, you know, whatever. Um, and that came easily to me to tap into that. Cause those were excruciating times as yeah. they are for most kids.
0: Yeah, I think so. I and mean, it wasn't a, uh, uh, if you're not
1: an athlete uh, or,
0: you know, in the po- or cheerleader, maybe. <laughs> So what do you hope other than being sort of incredibly uh, entertained and thinking they had a fun ride in reading? Uh, did I say you could go by the way, the title of the book is fucking legendary, Mel.
1: As long as you say it in the right way, you have to say, did I say you could go? <laughs> <laughs> did I say you could go? Right, right. Yes. It has to have yes. an edge. A very ominous sort of. Yeah. yeah or,
0: did I say you could go? <laughs> But it's a great title. And I mean, you you don't even, you know, the, the cover, is this the final cover? Yes. Yeah. So this kind of person hiding behind this rain window, right? That's
1: what it yeah, that is. Yeah, a window a condensation, window. yeah.
0: But even if this was just white writing on black paper, you sort of know what you're up for with yeah. that headline, with, yes. the, with the title. And you don't really need to read the back or any of that. You sort of understand, at least, mm. you're in for a ride when it's called did I say you could go? And so, um, you know, other than sort of the entertainment of it, what are the things that you hope people get when they read this novel?
1: Well, first and foremost, really, I wrote this book to entertain people and that, you know, I'm not going to say anything different. I wrote it because it was entertaining for me to write. I had a ton of fun writing it and also to entertain people, to have them, if I'm you know successful, to have them gasp at the twists and whatever. And, um, So that's really fun. And I think I did pull it off. I, you know, as we spoke about, I did delve into some deeper issues, some pretty intense issues for teenagers. And um, I think are really relevant and, you know, issues that we need to be talking about and considering, Um, but mostly, mostly it's just fun. So you you
0: really said, hey, I want to write a fun book.
1: I did. I did. I had written Valley of the Moon, which was a time travel book, which was very serious and beautiful and, you know, slow and moving. Um, so I wanted to write something zippy after that.
0: <laughs> and well, and you did. Um, the other thing that I find interesting is uh, this is a whole new genre for you. Mm hmm. And you had sort of staked your claim in this sort of chiclet female, uh, perspective. Yeah. You just don't call it chiclet. Oh, i we're not allowed. I, I didn't mean that pejorative. Oh, no, no. I'm just telling you. So
1: yes, it is. It oh, is. Oh, I didn't yeah. mean it as Those such genres. at all. I know you didn't, but I'll just say that, you know, it's not cool to call it chicklet, or even women's fiction is really demeaning because you're saying only women want to read this. So it's very reductive. Um, I would call it contemporary fiction or like pop fiction. Definitely not chiclet or women's fiction.
0: Okay. Well, I, yeah. I, I, I mean, no, just schooling. you. Just yeah. please <laughs> school me yeah. as appropriate. Um, but regardless, um, this is very different. Yeah. This is not a story about, you know, a woman dealing with her husband's uh, van that's driving or not. <laughs>
1: right. Right. No,
0: it's not. <laughs> and it's also not uh, anything that's deeply personal uh, memoir. Like, I mean, this is a, no, this is a figment of your imagination. I'm sure you draw from your life, but
1: it is, these people are nobody I know.
0: And so what happens, uh, when you say to your publisher, I want to do something completely different than what I've done before.
1: Um, well, I've done that many times. I have seven books, five different genres. And maybe it hasn't been the smartest thing because publishers like when you sort of stay in your lane, you build a brand.
0: Yeah. We all know what Tom Clancy is.
1: Yes. Right. Right. And he sells millions and millions of copies and he produces a book every year and you know, but I couldn't do that. I just couldn't do that because I would get bored if I kept writing the same book over and over again. And also I have taught myself so much by moving between genres about plot um, about like my gifts now, seven books in are much different than they were when I began. Mm. When I began, I was all about writing beautiful sentences, lyricism, um, much less concerned with plot. But as I moved through the books, the real fun thing for me was, was engineering the story and plot, um, became one of the number one things. And also, um, I was terrible at dialogue when I started out. Now I'm pretty good at it and I love it. Snappy, snappy, snappy. So for right now, plot and dialogue are the things I'm most excited about. Much less interiority um, of the characters. Hmm. And then what do you think
0: about the decision to write in the third person versus the first person?
1: Yes, I've done both. Um, first person, I think you have less freedom because you, can only, you only have that one... Sp- person's yes. perspective, right? Which can be very limiting. It's good in that um, it's very gripping. You imme- It's so accessible. There's an you,
0: intimacy to there's it. There's an
1: intimacy. You are in that person's head for the entire book, but it can be limiting. So um, my past two books, Valley of the Moon, were uh, from two different perspectives, a man and a woman. This is from four different perspectives, two moms and their two teenage daughters. And so I can really show you the things that you need to be shown and also withhold the things that need to be withheld and so much more freedom. I love writing this way. I'll probably always write from different point of views.
0: So you don't think you'd go back to first person writing. You you like the freedom to be able to show the reader.
1: I do. Unless there's some incredible character that comes to me like Hannibal Lecter, that is so charismatic, um, and unique and different that, uh, you know, that voice deserves to be the only voice in the book.
0: Yeah. I remember there's something that always speaks to me with first person. I get it about third person, but as a kid, I read Catcher in the Rye when I was probably Mm, 13. There's a
1: voice. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And it was a transformative book for me. I was a lost, angry, pissed off, punk rock kid and all that stuff. So there was a lot about that book that made a difference for me. And maybe it's just because of that, but that book, being in the first person uh, just makes it so much more personal. And then I remember when Brett Easton Ellis' uh, first big, I don't know if it was his first book, it was his first big book to break. It was called Less Than Zero, if oh, you remember. Yeah, yeah. And if I'm, I'm almost positive that was a first person book as well. And it, I don't know, there's something for me I get about that, but I realize as a writer how, how sort of constraining that might be.
1: It's really fun. and But for me, ultimately, it was limiting. I wanted a wider scope, wider lens, you know to tell the story and so how do you think or
0: do you think
1: your prior
0: readers are going to come along for this new genre switch?
1: Well, I hope they do um I think basically i'm I'm a good storyteller, and so that's why they'll come that's why they will come along for the good story,
0: yeah. Well, Mel, clearly I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. You
1: too, Chris. You're so charming and interesting. Oh,
0: thank you, love. <laughs> uh, I, and I don't know this is going to sound corny or whatever, but I, I just, I really admire what you're doing and what you've done. There's so much sort of quick hit and fast and get big fast and go viral and all that. And you just strike me as somebody who has really worked on her craft for decades. And you are a craft person, right? I mean, you seven books sounds like a lot to you. To some people, does? I mean, you've been a writer your whole professional life. Yeah. You could, you could argue it's not a lot. Now, I guess some people would argue it's a lot. But mm-hmm. it, the reason it probably doesn't feel a lot to you is because you know, what's in this book I hold in my hands. I mean, this is you went to work on this book. You didn't churn this thing out.
1: No, I had to teach myself how to write a thriller. <laughs> which was, I love that challenge. Teach myself how to write a time travel novel, teach myself how to write a memoir. I mean, there has to be, I have to have that with each book that I'm learning something new.
0: Hmm. And, and do you think you're taking your readers along for the learning journey, so to speak?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. And as I said, I just, you know, it's just good storytelling. That is my goal, good storytelling. So hopefully whatever the genre, they'll come along for the ride.
0: Awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about, Melanie?
1: No, this was amazing. Thank you, Chris.
0: Thank you. And uh, best of luck with this book launch. I, I have no doubt it's going to be a uh, a smashing success. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Thanks, Mel. Well, there she is. My friend, the legendary Melanie Gideon. Her new book is out. It's called Did I Say You Could Go? And it is a... Um, <laughs> To say it's a page-turner is to put it mildly. Also want to tell you that um, coming up soon on You're Different is none other than the legendary Marty Cooper. Now, most people know who who Bill Gates is. They know who Elon Musk is. They know who Sarah Blakely is. They know who many of the greatest uh, inventors, uh, innovators, and category designers of our time are. But very few people know who invented the cell phone. That's Marty, and we're going to get into all of it. He's got a great new book out, and he is an extraordinary human being. And candidly, I think Marty's a gift to humankind. Also coming up soon, uh, Dr. Avi Loeb is back. If you haven't uh, heard of him or you haven't heard our first episode with him, go back to follow your different number 202. You see, Professor Loeb is Harvard's most senior astronomer, and he's the first credentialed astronomer at his level or anything close to it to come out and say, we've been visited by aliens. And uh, if you've been paying attention, there's been a lot of talk about aliens lately. And so uh, professor Loeb is back. And another one that I think is going to be mind expanding. Sergey Young, he's a venture capitalist focused on longevity, and he's got a new book out that I think is going to rock the world. It's called The Science and Technology of Growing Young. And Sergey says um, that he, who's in his late 40s, will probably live past 120. The oldest living person ever was 122. And that we are very close to having human beings that live to 150 and 200. And beyond, and live to those ages well. That's coming up soon on Fall Your Different. Now, in times like these, being flexible and adaptable is critical to build a foundation for your business and thrive. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. You see, with NetSuite, the flexibility, the scalability is built in. Your ability to scale up, change, and adapt to new business models is easy with NetSuite. So now's the time to upgrade from QuickBooks, from your spreadsheet hairball to the power, flexibility and ease of NetSuite. Visit netsuite.com/different today for your free product tour. That's netsuite.com/different. And today, legendary businesses are digital first businesses and that's where my friends at splunk come in splunk is the leader in bringing data to everything every question every decision and every action check out splunk.com slash d2e and learn how to bring data to everything that's splunk.com slash d2e all right we would like to thank the legendary melanie gideon Woo! man oh man what an extraordinary human being Check out Did I Say You Could Go? It's uh, going to be everywhere, and uh, it's going to be one of those books that I think a lot of people are going to be talking about. Melanie Gideon, Did I Say You Could Go? My friends at One Life Fully Live.org are the nonprofit helping people dream, plan, and live your best life. If you want to make a difference, to people who've been making a difference for over 10 years, go to onelifefullylived.org and open your checkbook. My friends at bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you need an assistant who's nowhere near you and won't get anywhere near you, check out bottleneck.online. My friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. And at the Drop-In Coalition, we are helping underserved kids in the Santa Cruz area fall in love with both surfing and steam. Because when you get into the physical flow of surfing in nature, it opens you up to new ways of learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math. If you want to make a difference, check out dropincoalition.org. And my friends at Malibu Milk are the leaders in uh, whole plant flax milk. This stuff is on fire. It's probably the hottest category in the broad milk category. Check out Malibu Milk with a Y.com. That's Malibu Milk with a Y.com. And uh, if you haven't downloaded Halo app yet, why not? On episode 226, you met Neeraj and Michael, the two founders of HaloApp, app, who I'm very proud to be working with. It's the world's first real relationship network. Check out H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P dot com today. All right. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the whole property of the Lockhead Podcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. The left lane is the fast lane. If you're not going fast, please... Get out of the left lane. Please listen to the Tragically Hip. Uh, Lucinda Williams was right. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Not so sweet, huh? Sorry, Carson. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.